Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Awesome. Well, uh, it's an exciting night. Uh, if you didn't, haven't met me uh, by now, uh, my name is Josh. I'm on pastoral staff with Chi Alpha here at UVA. And um, yeah, woo. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, yeah, and, and I'm excited. I'm honored to bring the final message of the year to us tonight as we wrap up our series through the book of Genesis. But I thought I'd start with a quick story. Uh, so last winter, uh, my family and I took a trip to Disney World, and it was an incredible vacation. Uh, one of the highlights was, of course, the roller coasters. Uh, my son Carter, he's he's seven years old, so he is. You know, had just kind of come of the age and the height where he could get on the roller coasters. And I coaxed him on a couple of the coasters throughout the week. And to be honest, he wasn't the biggest fan during the ride. But after the fact, you know, he could boast about how awesome it was. And uh, on one of the days, I, I convinced him to get in line with me for this Guardians of the Galaxy ride in Epcot. And uh, his one condition was that it didn't go backwards. I didn't know anything about it, but I was like, man, it's an indoor track. It'll be dark. We'll go fast. But oh, I don't think we're going to go backwards. Why I said that, I have no idea. So we get on the coaster. We get in the last car on the train because that's the you know, safest or least scary place to be. Get buckled. They make the announcements. We start to, to move away from the, the loading dock. And I had no idea what was going to happen next. In a moment, all the cars on the train do a 180. We were facing backwards straight into the abyss. Carter screams out, why are we backwards? But before he can finish it, we jet off 60 miles per hour down into the abyss, staring out into darkness. He's screaming. I'm holding on to him, trying to you know, do something as if I could do anything to help him. Three minutes and 20 seconds of terror as we dive and spin and flip around the darkness. So, needless to say, uh, the ride didn't go as expected, and he and I felt totally out of control. Now, just last week, actually tonight, he was reading my message as it was sitting on the the sofa, and it's like, oh, I'm in the story. It's like, yep. Uh, I asked him, what did you think about that ride that we went on? His answer, I thought it was awesome. (laughs) Sure you did, buddy. Sure you did. (laughs) So, he's glad he's famous. Um, But... But have you ever gone through an experience that didn't go quite as expected? Sometimes it's a really great thing. Surprise birthday party. Surprise A on a Calc 2 midterm. Surprise your relationship you didn't expect coming this semester. Hashtag love story wins. (laughs) But, But sometimes, but sometimes it's, it's not such a great thing, right? Maybe even this semester you've had one of those experiences. Maybe this semester you didn't get into the major you were hoping for. Maybe as a fourth year, you're not launching out into the job that you were hoping for. Maybe this semester a relationship didn't turn out the way you expected it. One of those difficult things when it comes to the unexpected is the sense that we aren't in control of our lives and the disequilibrium of no longer being confident in what we thought was true about ourselves or about the world or even God. 
I'm excited about our story tonight because as we finish our series through the book of Genesis, we're going to be looking at the life of someone whose experience is so relatable. Uh, not in the details, but in what we can learn about what it looks like to follow God in the midst of the unexpected. So we're going to open up to Genesis chapter 37. I have all the scripture on the, the screen because it's a lot, but feel free to turn there in your Bibles as well. So we are going to finish the book of Genesis tonight. So yeah, make sure you have your seatbelts on, keep your arms and legs inside of your chair, because we have 14 chapters to cover in just a few minutes. But we're going to do it. So we're going to look at the life of the story of Joseph. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we just invite you into the space tonight. As we set out into our summers, as these fourth years set out into their futures, um, may we leave tonight, uh, not with my words, but with your words ringing in our ears with whatever hopes, whatever promises, uh, whatever truths we need to have um, residing in our souls, Lord. Would you speak to each one of us tonight in all of our unique situations and circumstances? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so last week we looked at the story of Jacob wrestling with God. And where we start tonight, we find Jacob settled in the land of Canaan with his 12 sons. And we also find that God has given Jacob a new name, which is Israel. Picking up in verse 2, Joseph was a young man of 17, and he was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So as we start, we learn that Joseph is one of the younger brothers. He was born to Jacob in his old age, and as a result, Joseph is the favorite son. And as the favorite, he received special privileges. His dad made him an ornate, multicolor robe. Joseph is exempt from the, the hard labor of shepherding that his other brothers are sent out to do. And this starts as no fault of Joseph's own. It's outside of his control, but his father's favoritism draws the ire of his brothers. And then in the midst of this family drama, what we see in the text is that God shows up in a peculiar way. One day, God gives Joseph a dream. Actually, two dreams. One is of 11 sheaves of grain bowing down to a 12th sheaf of grain. The other is 11 stars, the moon, and the sun bowing down to a 12th star. Joseph interprets both these dreams as foretelling his rule and reign over his family. And even though he's the second youngest, he goes on to tell his family, hey, one day I am going to rule over you and you will bow down to me. Which, as you can imagine, doesn't go over very well. His brothers become even more jealous of him. Couldn't blame him. Things go from bad to worse among the brothers. One day while Joseph, again, is at home doing his own thing, and his brothers are out tending the flocks, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on them, to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Then we pick up in chapter 37, verse 18. It says this, But the brothers saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. 
some brothers, they premeditate murder. Joseph's life is only spared because his eldest brother, Reuben, pleads for his life. So instead of killing Joseph, they just throw him into a dry cistern. And some travelers from Egypt come along, and the brothers see an opportunity to make 20 pieces of silver off their brother's life. So they sell him off as a slave. This is a tragedy. This is not the start to a good story. Father whose favoritism divides his sons, a first-degree murder plot which is only stopped short by a last-ditch effort, the convenience of making a little cash. Where's this going to go? Joseph's life seems to be unraveling out of control. From here, we see that Joseph is taken to Egypt by the traders and sold as a slave into the house of Potiphar, who's one of Pharaoh's officials. He's the captain of the garden. And what we see, again, interestingly enough, is that in the midst of another terrible situation, God shows up. In chapter 39, verse 2, we read that the Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to him and entrusted to his care everything he owned. So we see, again, in the midst of a terrible situation, as a slave to a leader in the Egyptian empire, far from home, that God was still with Joseph. That God's presence blessed Joseph. In fact, things go so well that under Potiphar, Joseph is put in charge of the entire household. So unexpectedly, things are going really well. But, yet again, as we're about to see, Joseph's story takes a turn for the worst. Chapter 39, picking up in verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. See, Joseph, he had good genes. There's no doubt about it. He had what we call the riz. <laughs> and Potiphar's wife wanted some of that. She begs Joseph to come to bed with her. I like that. I know some words. But yeah, so, so he's got it going on, and she begs Joseph to come to bed with her. But what does Joseph do? Does he fall through the temptation? No, that's right. Yeah, someone said it. He honors God. He honors his master. In verse 9, he says, No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing against God? So, we see that Joseph does the right thing. And from then on, it says that he avoided even being around her. Till one day, when Potiphar's wife decides to falsely accuse Joseph of trying to sleep with her. Joseph's arrested, thrown in jail. The story of his life apparently goes from out of the frying pan into the fire. What's going to happen to him? This dude can't catch a break. His life continues to spin out of control. I mean, he started out as a, as a punk teenager, right? But did he deserve this? You see in the text that Joseph is sent off to prison. But then yet again, the end of chapter 39, we see in the midst of another terrible situation that the Lord was with him. Just as Joseph found success in Potiphar's household, 
he found success in prison. And then while in prison, Joseph spends some time with two men, the king's cupbearer and the king's uh, baker. So we don't know why they're there. So maybe they forgot donut day. Maybe they served up some bad kombucha. Who could say? But in the midst of this imprisonment, God shows up again. They have dreams. They share their dreams with Joseph. And the long and short is God gives Joseph the interpretation to these dreams, which results in the restatement of the cupbearer, fortunately for him, and the baker getting his head chopped off. So not so fortunate for him. Um, uh, and, and Joseph, he, he desperately hopes that this will result in his own freedom. I mean, after all, at this point in the story, we've moved through it fairly quickly, but at this point in the story, Joseph has spent 11 years away from his family. He has been a, a, a slave or in prison for 11 years. Surely the cup, bearer, the, the, the cup bearer will do Joseph a favor and call for his release as a reward. Chapter 40, verse 23. What does a cup bearer do? The chief cup bearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Oh, wah, wah. this is tragic. For two long years, Joseph waits under the mercy of the cupbearer, under the control of the cupbearer, each day wondering if today will be the day that the stupid cupbearer remembers. Two years pass. When Joseph is 30 years old, God shows up again. This time it's Pharaoh who has a dream. The dream is of seven skinny cows eating up seven fat cows. And he has another dream. It's the vegetarian version. Seven unhealthy heads of grain eating seven healthy heads of grain. And he has a third dream. This time it's the gluten-free version. We have... <laughs> they didn't exist back then. Uh, maybe they did. Uh, <laughs> wow. Wasn't expecting that. Uh, but the point is, that he had all these dreams, none of Pharaoh's magicians could interpret the dreams. And to this moment, the cupbearer finally remembers about Joseph. He tells Pharaoh that Joseph can interpret dreams. Chapter 41, verse 14. So, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one could interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So how does Joseph reply? Of course. Your wish is my command. One interpretation coming right up. Anything to get me out of this place. Verse 16, I cannot do it. You don't get yanked out of jail and tell Pharaoh you can't do it. I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. See, Joseph seems to have learned something over the past 14 years about who he is and who he is not and who God is. 
He is not the same man who is sitting at the bottom of the cistern to the 17-year-old boy. Something has changed. So God gives Joseph an interpretation to the dreams, which they're a warning. The warning is that there will be seven years of plentiful harvest followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph shares the, the, the interpretation, the meaning with Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh to start a national preparation plan to get ready for the coming disaster. Chapter 41, verse 37. Pharaoh says, uh, the following verse says, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. What a meteoric rise to power. For 14 years of his life, Joseph lived under roofs that were not his own. His life was not his own. His destiny was out of his control. He was the property of Potiphar. He was a prisoner of the king. But in this moment, Joseph is thrust into the spotlight to a position of authority that he had dreamed of. But he could have never imagined happen given the circumstances. So, from this moment on in the story, uh, Joseph leads Egypt through the seven years of plenty, stockpiling resources. And then, just as Joseph interpreted, the seven years of famine begin. In the midst of the famine, back home in Canaan, uh, Jacob's family is running out of food. He sends his uh, sons to, to Egypt to purchase some grain, and when they arrive in Egypt, they speak directly to Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph does not allow them to purchase grain immediately. Uh, he, he wants to see his youngest brother, Benjamin, first. So some of the brothers are sent back. Benjamin is brought to Egypt. And in chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals his true identity. It says this, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years there has now been famine in the land. And for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. What a dramatic reunion. Can you picture Joseph on the throne, all the authority of Egypt on his shoulders, revealing himself? And the brothers, the fear they must have felt. In this moment, they realized the dream that Joseph had at 17 years of age was becoming a reality right before their eyes. Of course, Joseph would send them off 
to execution immediately. After all the pain and suffering that they had caused him. But instead, Joseph offers forgiveness. After this reunion, Joseph's brothers return home. They bring Jacob and all of his household to live in Egypt. They will not only go on to survive the famine, but to become a great nation. I have a question for you as we think about the story that we just heard of Joseph's life. The question is this, who was in control of Joseph's life? Who was in control of his life? Was it his father who favored him? The brothers who despised him? Potiphar's wife who accused him? The, the cupbearer who forgot him? Even Pharaoh who, himself who gave Joseph power and authority? Who was in control of Joseph's life? Was it these men and women who dictated the course of his life? Or was it someone else? Was it the God who gave Joseph a prophetic dream? The God who was with Joseph in slavery? The God who was with Joseph in prison? The God who interpreted dreams? The God who put his very spirit in Joseph? Was it God? Was it those men and women? In Genesis 15, verse 20, Joseph gives his answer. He says this to his brothers, that you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. As Joseph looks back on his life, he sees God's hand all over it. He understands that God did not forsake him, but was actively working in each and every circumstance, no matter how dire. Joseph unequivocally says that God was in control of his life. Another question for us tonight is this. Who do you believe is in control of your life? Who do you believe is in control of your life? Who's calling the shots? I believe how we answer this question is in part what ends up defining our lives. And I believe there are three basic ways that we can answer this question. The first is this. that We can say, I'm in control. Personally, I'm a a control freak. I, I like holding on. I like thinking I can have an ultimate say in my future. But when we live like we have ultimate control, we create a pressure that cannot be contained. We'll destroy ourselves. Because when, it's all, because when it's up to us, our performance is all that we have. And when we're doing well and things are going our way, this can feel really empowering, right? But when we've done all we can, made the best grades, built the rest, best resume, made the best connections... We still don't get the job. We still don't get the summer internship. It can be devastating. There's moments where the best laid plans will fall apart. Please hear this. If we think that we are the director of our lives, that we will live in perpetual worry and fear. Failures will not just be setbacks. They'll be catastrophic. And when we live this way, we fool ourselves into into thinking that there's a freedom in taking control. When really, 
as Isaac said himself, that we just become slaves to our own expectations. The rather than getting freedom and taking control, we, we become slaves to our own expectations. Second way we can answer the question is, is to say that those around me are in control, or my circumstances are controlling me. This results in a perpetual instability. We're always one tragedy, one betrayal, one sickness, one rejection away from our lives going into a tailspin. With this mindset, we're forced to live to please others rather than to live for God. We do this because we view our, our, our boss, our significant other, our professors, or our peers as being the ones who hold our futures in their hands. It's so unstable. Finally, the third way to answer this question, and that's what we'll spend the, the, the remainder of our time tonight talking about, is... Um, to say that God is in control. Not just to say it, but to come to terms with what it means to believe it. That he is sovereign in our lives. That he holds our future in our hands. That he is committed to never letting go. When we look at Joseph's life, we see this to be true. How much different would Joseph's life have been if he didn't recognize God's hand every step of the way? His life would have been nothing short of a tragedy. But God's sovereignty changed Everything. See, when we live knowing God is in control, our lives will be able to withstand the circumstances that feel out of our control. Our lives will not be pulled this way and that by the whims of those around us, but instead we can live with a stability and a peace that's unshakable. And when we live knowing that God is in control, when we hand the role of director over to Him, we no longer are slaves to our own expectations. We can trust that God is with us even in the midst of what seem to be failures. So I want to finish tonight by just asking the question, how, how do we live as people under God's sovereignty? And I want to end with three, three simple ideas. The first is this, that we live with Humility. If you didn't notice, Joseph didn't start out as, as very humble, right? No, he was, he was very proud. But what I love about Joseph's response to Pharaoh when he was called to interpret the dream, when he was called to interpret the dreams, was that he said, I can't do it. That it's not on me. That it's on God alone. He'd come to learn where his two, true source of strength and identity would come from. Jacob speaks to this transformation in Joseph's life um, when he blesses his son Joseph at the end of Genesis. Jacob calls Joseph a fruitful vine near a spring. A fruitful vine near a spring. Uh, you know, I, I, maybe you caught it. I totally missed it. I didn't see any springs in Joseph's life. Did you? I mean, in fact, it literally started at the bottom of a dry well. Doesn't get any Less springy than that. But as Joseph grew in humility, he came to understand that he could bloom wherever he was planted. He could bloom wherever he was planted because God was his never-ending source of life. And humility, as we submit control of our own lives to God, he will show us. He'll show you how you can bloom and be fruitful in whatever situation you find yourself in. 
fourth years, know that as you graduate and head on to whatever is next, that God knows that you can bloom wherever you go, whether that be in the teacher's lounge or in the hospital or at home figuring out whatever is next or in the cubicle, that God wants you to bloom wherever you're planted. And he knows you can do that because he promises that he will be with you. And his presence is all that you need. First year, second years, third years. Know that wherever you are headed this summer, that God is with you. And his presence is all you need to bloom wherever you are planted. As you go to be an ambassador for Christ, Kai Alphen, among your friends, among your family back home, your friends if you stay here in Charlottesville. So first, we live in humility. Second is this, that we live under God's sovereignty by living with integrity, by trusting that God's way is the best way, no matter what. Now, when Potiphar's wife came to, to Joseph, you know, he could have thought, I've gotten none of my lot in life. Why not just enjoy this, stab my master in the back while I'm at it? He could have done that, but he didn't. He still chose to live with integrity. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. See, when we submit to God, we live in his ways and are obedient to him and are faithful in what we do know, God will lead us in what we don't know. Here's the rub, though. Living with integrity doesn't mean things will always go our way. I mean, Joseph sought to honor God, sought to honor his master, and he still ended up with the short end of the stick. But what we see time and time again in Scripture is that God doesn't take shortcuts. Because here's what God knew. He knew that 17-year-old Joseph was useful, or was useless uh, when it came to delivering Israel during the time of the famine. But 30-year-old Joseph? The Joseph who had withstood the temptations of Potiphar's wife, the Joseph who endured 14 years of slavery and imprisonment, God knew he could work with that. And the same is true for us, that as we honor God with the way we live our lives, we will see more clearly where he is at work in our lives and where he is taking us. Living against God's good intentions will simply not lead us to where God wants us to be. Now, I know that home can be a hard place to live holy. Whether it's just being out of community or certain triggers and, or temptations that hit you at home, home can be hard. So I would encourage you, as you go home this summer, as we all exit this, uh, this place here in a few weeks, may we commit to, to following the path that God has for us. May we commit to spending daily time with Jesus. May we commit to staying in community, whatever it takes. May we commit to fleeing from sin, just, just as Joseph did. May we stay, as Isaac put it, close to God's heart, close to his love for us, and live with integrity the kind of life that God has for each one of you. And finally, uh, third way we live under God's sovereignty is that we live with hope. The band could go ahead and come forward as we prepare to respond. We live with hope. I believe that hope is, or, or maybe it should be, one of the primary characteristics of a follower of Jesus. 
Why? Because I believe that God's story is our story. See, Joseph's life was, it's not out there now, but Joseph's story was not just the beginning. We don't look at his life and think, well, man, I'm really glad I worked out for Joseph. No. God can rescue you out of the darkest of circumstances. God can take the evil things of this world and bring good in your life. We can submit control of our lives to him and be confident that he will not fail us. So how do we know this? We know this because on the darkest day in history, on the day that Jesus Christ went to the cross, on the, di- on the day that Satan and all the forces of hell thought they had wrestled control away from God once and for all, God was victorious. That he took evil and turned it to good for our sake. When it seemed to the world that God couldn't control anything, he proved once and for all that he was sovereign over everything. That we have hope because Jesus is alive. Your story is ultimately God's story. Can I remind you the hope we have in knowing how the story ends? In Revelation 22, we get a picture of Eden restored. We come back full circle to the beginning. We're told that one day we will live within reach of the tree of life, providing us endless fruit, endless healing, endless sustenance and vitality. One day we'll experience no more curse. One day we'll see God face to face and our communion with him will never come to an end. And one day, God will reign forever and ever. Friends, this is your story. And this is why our God is trustworthy Today, this is why we can hope. So how do we live under God's sovereignty? Walking in humility, walking in integrity, and walking with a great hope. As we close in response and worship tonight, I just have two simple questions. The first, who's in control of your life? As you head into summer, are you white-knuckling it, holding on to every ounce of control that you can? Certain circumstances or people left you feeling totally out of control. Tonight, can you embrace God's hand on your life as a source of peace and stability and hope? Second question is this. How can you embrace God's sovereignty over your life? Maybe it's by embracing humility, letting go of the reins to your good Father, trusting in Him. Maybe it's walking in the ways that God has for you. If you're honest, you'd say as the semester has worn on, you've started to tread down paths that you know are not God's best for you. Can we turn back to Him? Walk the path that He has for us in integrity as we go into our summers. Or do you need a renewed sense of hope? Do you need to fix your eyes on his story tonight? That's you. I encourage you to just look to the cross. Look to the beautiful picture that we await in Revelation. So 
friends, may we walk into this summer confident of the one who holds our lives in his hands. And may we surrender to surrender, surrender everything we have, everything we are to him. May we do it with full confidence that his goodness and his mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Let's worship. Yes, can we give a shout of praise to God's faithfulness tonight for who he is? Yes, Jesus, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you have our lives in your hands and nothing could ever change that. Jesus, we thank you for, for your favor, for your, for your blessing, for, for everything that you pour out on us tonight and every day of our lives that is more than we deserve. We thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. We thank you that your goodness will follow us all the days of our life. Thank you that we can, that we can trust you. That we can let go of the control that we think we have to have over our lives because you are faithful, because you are good, because you do not fail. God, we pray a blessing over our, our fourth years, God. May your favor follow them. May they know that your presence is before them and behind them and beside them, wherever they find themselves, that they would know that they can bloom wherever they are planted, that, that you are with them. And God, I pray for, for each one of the rest of us in this room tonight, Lord, that as we go out into our summers, Lord, that, that you would go before us as well, Lord, that we would know with confidence that you are in control of our lives, that you are the sovereign one, Lord. Because of that, there is nothing to fear. Lord, we stand on the stable ground of, of Jesus Christ, and nothing can shake that. God, we thank you for seeing your faithfulness this year, over these past four years, for the last of these fourth years. For the stories that you have written for the way that you have brought us into your story. That what you started at the beginning continues today, even now, and will continue for eternity as we journey with you in this life on earth and as we rule and reign with you forever. So God, I pray as we leave this place tonight that we would go knowing of who we are, of who you are, of the story that you want to write in each one of our lives. Now for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Wow. It's been a good night. A good night to go out on. Uh, fourth years, we love you. We're going to miss you. We're excited to see all the, all the goodness that, that God leads you in, where he takes you from here. 
Um, all of you not graduating in the room, we're excited to see you next fall, and I uh, hope you have a great summer, and uh, we're excited to connect over summer Kayafas here in Charlottesville and around Virginia, and uh, yeah, we're looking forward to all that God has in store for us as we go from here. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.